I know that the Bible speaks of us in general terms as believers and God's people, but I, I get encouraged, and uh, I think perhaps uh, you understand, I don't know if I can explain this accurately, but I get encouraged when I read the Savior speaking specifically about me. Amen. And uh, not just, I mean, I'm not going to find my name. Well, not the one that, uh, there's a Joseph in the Bible, but I'm a different Joseph. You know that. Uh, but I'm encouraged to see when the Bible speaks of, of folks like me and you, especially when the Savior, for instance, in John chapter 17, what we call the high priestly prayer of Jesus, that was a chapter that had a marvelous effect on me when I was preaching through the gospel of John many years ago. I don't know about you, but there are times when you, you get into a, a spiritual rut and there's a a darkness that you just can't figure out why it's there. I am not a psychoanalyst, I'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist or any of those things, but I, I hear people say that sadness is when you're sad and you know why, and depression is when you're sad and you don't know why. And I was in a dark valley, and I don't know that I would call it depression, but honestly, I didn't know why. Why, why do I suddenly have this, this darkness in my own Heart. And not only was there this sort of a, a melancholy spirit about me, and it was a, a time of, of, of doubt. Doubt that I had never experienced. And it, it, it's jarring if you've ever experienced that. Especially, you know, some of us who have been raised in church all of our lives, and I would never insinuate I've been saved all of my life, but I will say that I don't remember a time when I didn't look at the Word of God as God's Word. I, I was raised with the Bible. I wasn't born saved. I got saved later on as a young man. But I don't remember ever thinking God wasn't real. I never had a, an, a skeptical idea that the Bible was not to be trusted. But I remember uh, many years ago, as, as I'm preaching through the Gospel of John, that these jarring thoughts would come into my mind... And it felt almost like they were mine own, but they couldn't be. Thoughts like, well, that's not true, as I read scripture. And it would trouble me. Like, well, where did that come from? Why would I think, that, why would I in any way have entertained this thought? And not entertain it, but it would just come into my head. And that persisted for a while, and it's, it dragged you down. When you know, you, Lord, I believe these things. Where are these tremendous doubts coming from? And after a while, you begin to wonder, am I losing, am I losing faith? Well, I don't believe you can lose your salvation. Am I, am I losing a hold of, of the faith of the, of the gospel and, and the word of God? Is, is the spirit of God departing from me? And you begin to, to, to wonder if all of these promises that you have latched onto are now being stolen away from you because your faith is diminishing. But then, by God's grace and his good providence, I started preaching through John chapter 17. Mm -hmm. And when I came to the part, I've come to it before, I've read the verse many times, but sometimes they hit you right between the eyes in a way that you've never experienced the verse before. And one of those verses was where the Savior said, 
I pray not for them only, but for them, they who will believe on me through their word. And I thought, oh man, that's me. I may doubt my faith, but I have no need to doubt that Christ gets all of his prayers answered. And so I may not be able to stand in the strength of my own faith, if I can put it that way, and we shouldn't. I can always stand and hold on to the faith that is the Son of God. He believes for me, amen? He is obedient for me. His prayers are answered on my behalf. And if Christ has prayed for me, and I am one of those who has believed because of the preaching of the Word of God, I am as the ones that Christ has prayed for in John 17, who believe because they have others have spoken the Word, beginning with the apostles and down through these thousands of years. That's, that, that's me too. And suddenly I was elated, and the light was shining, and the veil was lit. I can't explain it. The chains were gone, and springtime came again in my soul, and the winter snows had melted, and I realized it's not up to me, something I'd already known, something I already understood, but now again, this, this boost, if I may, this nourishment of the Holy Spirit coming in and, and rebuilding all of that from the ground up. I don't believe you can lose your salvation. I don't believe that if you're a child of God that you're in danger of losing that. But I do believe that our faith can ebb and flow. And I do believe that for reasons unknown that I cannot explain, at times our own faith against our own judgment and our own wishes that we can go through those dark times where you feel like you're hanging by a thread and the doubts assail and the fears dismay. But I have news for you. If you're in a situation like that or you have been or you're going to be, it's not forever. Sometimes it's longer for other people. Mine, it, it, it was a few weeks but when it's over and the light comes on again, it is glorious. This is another passage that we see the Savior praying for me. And if you have your own Bible, uh, something I like to do, uh, you can write in the margin uh, where Jesus speaks to Thomas, verse 29, blessed are they that have not, yet, that have not seen and yet have believed. <laughs> if you're a believer, write your name in the margin. Say, that's me. <laughs> Put an arrow next to it. That's me right there. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. That's me. And Jesus said, I am blessed. I want to look at this sentence that Jesus speaks to Thomas. We call him Doubting Thomas. Bless his heart. Gets a bad rap for all of his earthly legacy. Doubting Thomas. This is where it comes from. <laughs> but we're all doubting Thomases at times, aren't we? We all wonder and question. And sometimes we mope like Thomas did when others are saying, Jesus is alive. And he's like, I'm not going to believe it. Until I can put my fingers in the nail prints in his hand and put my, my hand in the spear wound in his side, I will not believe. 
Maybe you've heard somebody say that. Seeing is believing. I'll believe it when I see it. Now that's true about commercial products and claims that advertisers make, I understand. The best yet, the biggest ever, the most incredible whatever. Yeah, I'll believe it when I see it. But I'm here to tell you regarding faith in Christ and saving faith specifically, seeing is not believing. Believing is seeing. Believing is seeing. I want to ask two questions. The first one is, what is this blessedness that Jesus speaks of? He says, blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Blessedness in the Bible, we think of being blessed, and it's not a bad way to think of it, but it's not the only way to think of it. We think of being blessed as having stuff. Good fortune, good luck, things are going your way. You get a winning lottery ticket, and you win a bazillion dollars, and people are going to say, wow, what a blessing. Yeah, or, you know, something good happens. You find a $20 bill in the Walmart parking lot. It was there hanging out of somebody's pocket, and there you there you found it. Look at, no, don't do that. We say that was a blessing. You know, uh, it, we, we call blessings good things that happen. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But blessedness, being blessed in this, in this idea that the Savior uses in the way that he does, is a happiness that cannot be stolen away. It is an enduring, bone-deep, spiritually inclined happiness that is not dependent on the outside world, blessed. It is a happiness that is not dependent on those around you, on the circumstances around you, whether the sun is out, whether the sun isn't out. It's a blessedness that goes on and continues on whether the seas are calm or stormy or dried up. Blessedness. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. This blessedness is the happiness that comes with knowing God. There's nothing like knowing God in this life. There's no other source of happiness that is as sure and as truly happy as knowing God. And the unbeliever goes through this life wanting to see God and experience the Almighty or whatever terminology they use, the this, this spirit world. So many say, well, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. Okay, I understand what they, I think I understand what they mean when they say that, but always between the unbeliever and the Lord, there is this separation between the two. Always. They are his creation, but outside of Christ, they are not in the family. They are not a child of God yet. And I know that we use that terminology loosely. Well, we're all children of God. No, not so. Not so at all. The Bible never insinuates, hints, or even talks about that idea. We're all creatures of God. We're all made in the image of God. But humanity in its default setting is in rebellion against God. Some family that is. But no, when we're born again, that's what that means. To be born again means you're birthed into the family of God. You were born into the family of humanity. But when salvation comes and you're born again by the Spirit... He births you into the family of God, something you never experienced until then. That's why John says in his gospel, they that received him to them gave you power or the right to become the sons of God. If I may, the adopted children of God, 
by right through Jesus Christ, who is not adopted, but is the only begotten of God. And he shares that sonship with us who are in him. All of this by faith. But the unbeliever is at enmity with God. The unbeliever doesn't realize that if they were to see God, they would be undone, destroyed, unraveled. Sinful man cannot lay his eyes upon a holy God. And for them to say things and insinuate things and entertain the idea that I'll believe God when I see God, they must understand if you're outside of Christ and you come in contact with the immediate presence of the glory of God, you are unraveled and undone. And in fact, those who had faith, though they were in the flesh and in this life and still encumbered with their earthly bodies and about them having those remaining corruptions, when they came even near in any way, the presence of the divine, whether through a theophany or the, the visitation of an angel, all of them fall on their face and there is a great fear and an undoing because they think to themselves, I have seen and been near a holy and glorious God and I am going to die. You want to see God? It would end your life just like that if you were not shielded by Christ. Sinful flesh has no business mingling with holy God. It cannot. Remember what God said to Moses. Moses said, in so many words, I'd like to see you. Which is amazing, isn't it? Moses hears the voice of God. He sees this burning bush, representation of God's enduring character and holiness. He receives from God miracles and, and audible voices and revelation. And then uh, he is there communing with God on the mount. And he has this idea, I would like to see you. And God said, thou canst not see my face. You can't look upon me, Moses. You're still enrobed in flesh. Your eyes cannot behold my eyes. Because that would be the undoing of you. God said in Exodus 33, There shall no man see me and live. Seeing is believing. May I say when it comes to God, seeing is dying. There shall no man see me and live. Christ is the only man that could look on God's holiness and not perish. Because he is holy. And if you are in Christ by faith, you are not only shielded from the bright holiness of God that will undo sinful flesh. Brothers and sisters, you are made to partake of that holiness of God. In John chapter 1 and verse 18, John writes that no man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. In other words, Jesus not only has been in the presence of the, the glory of God, but being God himself and God in the flesh, he can come then through his sinless flesh and then not only tell us, hey guys, guess what I saw, but then declare us to us all that God is. He shows us what God is like, something we could never experience and know. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus and follow him. He has declared him. What is this blessedness? It is the happiness that comes with knowing God. 
And it is the happiness that comes by believing God's promises. God keeps all of his promises. And they're good promises, aren't they? Promises of eternal life and resurrection. Promises of a coming day when there's no more sin and curse and death and disease and struggling and affliction and and pain. All of it is done away with. No more tears. We even see in the closing chapters of the Bible that one day God will wipe away all the tears of his people. No more tears even. Good promises. Great promises. Grand promises. Not like our politicians who promise us the world and don't even give us a city block. Who lobby for votes and lie and smear their way into power. God doesn't do that. He doesn't need to do that. All of his promises are good and they're all grand and they're all encouraging. And we believe the promises of God. I'm glad to know that I can get up tomorrow morning and come what may. Look, it doesn't matter what happens. The Lord is coming back. The resurrection is coming. I have an eternal home awaiting me. And one day all of my tears shall be dried and so will yours. You know, faith is the substance of things hoped for. The Bible says, Hebrews 11.1. 1. What is faith? Well, the Bible says what faith is. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. And these things that are hoped for are not, wow, I hope, I'll, I hope to win a million dollars. Like that scene from It's a Wonderful Life. And uh, who's the Jimmy Stewart's character? What's his name? George Bailey. The young George Bailey goes into the drugstore back when they served more than just medicine and laxatives, but they had milkshakes and, you know, fun stuff like that. And, he, and there was this little machine. Some of you uh, who are older than me, maybe you remember these things. I don't quite get it, but you push something and then it lights. Little, it was like some sort of a trinket. You push it. And I guess the arm strikes something and it lights up and you make a wish. I don't quite understand what it was, but he would push it and it would make this, this motion of, and, and there was this light it looked like on the top of it. And he would make a wish and his wish was, I wish I had a million dollars. And then he'd push it. Oh boy, you know, that's not the kind of hope the Bible speaks of. That we, we have this desire for something that probably will never happen, but it sure would be nice. I hope... I wish. No, the hope of Scripture is not like that at all. The hope of Scripture is God has promised something and we believe it. And though that that something hasn't happened yet, we hold on to it and we live as though it is currently happening and we currently have it in our possession. It is the substance, the holding on of what God has promised. Faith is reaching through this life and into the next life and laying hold on what God has promised us to be fulfilled in eternity and getting it and saying, there it is, I'll live accordingly, it's mine. It is the, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The language there reminds me of holding and seeing, holding with your own hands and seeing with your own eyes what God has said will come. It's not yet, but it's coming. You can't behold it with your fleshly eyes, but you can see it with faith. You can't hold it with your fleshly hands, but you can hold it in faith. And the happiness that we enjoy in this life is knowing that we have all the promises of God, all of them fulfilled in Christ and laid up for us in heaven. Amen. I'm so glad for verses like 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 20. 
All the promises of God in him are yea and in him are amen unto the glory of God by us. And I don't know about you, but I get so tired sometimes of hearing some of our brethren in the faith who put too much of a distinction uh, between the promises of the Old Testament and the promises of the New Testament. And you read something that you, stirs your heart in the book of Psalms or in the prophets and they go, well, that was for the Jews of the Old Testament and not, and not for you. Oh, phooey. All the promises of God in him are yea and in him amen. They're all mine through Christ. They're all fulfilled in Christ and available to me. We read in Hebrews 11 and verse 13. These all, all the people mentioned in the book of Hebrews, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, all of them, and, and on it goes. All of these died in faith. Not having received the promises. What were those promises? God said, Abraham, I'll give you a land. I'll give you ancestors, uh, uh, descendants that come from you without number. How many descendants did Abraham have for a long time? <laughs> Zero. And then there came one that he shouldn't have had. But, you know, he finagled his way around with human logic. And then there was one. But it wasn't the child of promise. And then finally, Isaac is born. Here is the promised child. How many is that for you now, Abraham? One. Where are the descendants without number? The sand of the sea and the stars of the sky. He believed, though. And he lived his life in that land as though it, uh, he was a pilgrim. God said, I'm going to give this all to you and all to your descendants. But he didn't have that in his life. But he died believing and he was persuaded of the promises and he embraced them and he confessed in his lifetime, Abraham did, that he was a stranger and a pilgrim on the earth. And the writer of Hebrews says something very encouraging. They that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And that country that Abraham was looking for was not just Canaan land. It wasn't just Israel as we call it today. He was looking for a better country, a greater country, an enduring country. He was looking for heaven. What is this happiness? It is the happiness that comes by knowing the best is yet to come. To know that our happiness, beloved, is not staked on the circumstances of this life, but the promises that await us in the next. There's a happiness there. James encourages us. He says, take for example, my brethren, the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. Look at the likes of Moses and Elijah and, and Jeremiah and Isaiah and see them as they stand for God and preach the truth and all the persecution, affliction, and troubles they endured. And yet they go on. And he says, James says of them, we count them happy which endure. And we can endure because we know this is not it. This is not the end. This is not all of it. This life of ours is not the sum total of our existence. Brothers and sisters, it's just a drop in the bucket of eternity. Drink that in and meditate on that truth. Let it change how you think and feel and you will find that there is an enduring happiness that comes with that. So your job isn't what you hoped it would be. 
You don't like the house that you have. You did like it when you saw it and you bought it. Now it's not, you know, it's got a cracked foundation, brother, right? It's better than nothing. Better than nothing, amen. I heard, I forgot where I saw it, but I heard maybe one of you shared this with me. I think one of you on Wednesday night shared this and I overheard. I mean, uh, yeah. <laughs> ah, yes. Uh, but it was about a, a woman whose house was destroyed, I think, by a tornado. And if you told this to me, you have to tell me later, that was me, Pastor Joe, and I didn't get credit. I'll give you credit. But the house was destroyed by a tornado, and they had just built it like eight years previous to that. Did you tell this to me? No. They had just built like eight years previous to that. Oh, we're going to do donuts in the parking lot. Ah-hoo! Oh, I guess not. Latecomer to services. And the, 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 a news interviewer came to them and said, uh, in so many words, well, how are you dealing with this? Well, we're doing fine, you know. Uh, actually, we're excited about building another house, just like the one we just had. And it was kind of nice in the fact that now we know everything that was wrong with it. The next time we build, it's going to be even better. We, we, after eight years is long enough to know everything that went wrong. Eight years is long enough to know that you should have put the door on the other side, etc., etc. And I thought, wow, what a happy perspective on such a terrible tragedy. What is this happiness? It comes by knowing the best is yet to come. That this, this, this isn't all there is, folks. If you're miserable right now, I got good news for you. It's not, this is not the sum total of your life. Number two, why is there a blessedness in believing without seeing? And you're like, Pastor, that's the second point, man. You said a short sermon today. I know, I'm sorry. But I'll run through this real quick. Why is there a blessedness in believing without seeing? Why is there a happiness to this? I'll say because this is the very nature of faith. Not seeing and yet holding on to the promises of God. That is exactly what faith is. And not to diminish Thomas's faith. He saw and believed. Believing is believing. But may I say, when it comes to faith, the very essence of faith is to believe even though you have not seen. Does that mean faith is blind? Some say that blind faith is dangerous. And I agree with that on certain conditions. Blind faith on anything. But the promise of God is dangerous. I wouldn't blindly trust people or, you know, circumstances or promises of checks in the mail, right? But nevertheless, promises of God, you can, you can rest on those. Blind faith in the promises of God, you'll not be ashamed of. Blind faith doesn't mean we don't have evidence that supports our faith. Amen. Blind faith doesn't mean that there isn't even a logical rationale to having faith. But it means that we are not, our faith is not contingent on whether we see something that we desire to see in order first to believe. We hear the word of God and we believe it. Amen. We put our faith in it. Amen. Amen. We see in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. So that leads me to say, secondly, there's a blessedness in believing without seeing because this is the walk of faith. Faith begins the Christian journey and faith is in every step along the way a part of how we live. Faith starts the engine, so to speak, but it also fuels the journey. It begins this pilgrimage. It starts us out 
But it's in every step along the way, faith. We walk by faith. We live by faith, not by sight. And lastly, why is this believing without seeing a, a, a source of happiness? Because believing without seeing is the glory of faith. And what I mean is it honors God in the highest when we trust his word alone. Think about it. This is where all of our problems began. Adam and Eve did not believe what God had said. They saw God, didn't they? They they heard God. They saw manifestations of God in ways that you and I have not. And yet they did not trust that God's word was true. And now here we are. And do we wonder then why God requires faith for salvation? The very absence of which plummeted the whole race of humanity into sin. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Amen. Some folks might, I hear them say sometimes, read them on different internet atheist forums, you know, people say it in passing or in heated debate. I'll believe God when this happens. I'll believe God when that happens. No, no, look. God says you must believe, first of all, that he is. He does not require or does not give you a, a, a set of evidence that you must sign off on and then you can believe. The only thing he gives you is his word. And you have enough evidence in this life. It is the glory of faith. Listen, I close with this. Many won't believe in the Lord because they trust their eyes and not his word. But can you trust your eyes? Is your perception and your perspective infallible? Haven't we all been fooled by our own senses? But God's word is sure and his promises are real. The Bible says, hope maketh not ashamed. You, listen, you put your trust in this book right here and you'll never regret it one day of your life. And you'll be glad you did all through eternity. Let's stand and pray.